Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Dan Wei Huang, an associate professor in the Department of Biological Science at the National University of Singapore. His work focuses on the ecology, evolution, and conservation of coral reefs, aiming to uncover insights into their overall health. In this episode, we explore the human-induced factors affecting reefs, including coastal urbanization and reclamation projects, and their complex impact on coral reefs. Despite the challenges posed by rising sea surface temperatures and massive bleaching events, Don Rush has an optimistic view on the resilience of coral reefs. Emphasizing the critical role of collaborative data collection and the power of local initiatives in addressing a global issue, Don underscores the importance of community engagement in coral reef conservation. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Don Wei Huang. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to speak to you about, about what we do and the reefs. We'd love to start off by hearing exactly that. What got you interested in coral reefs and how you ended up at the National University of Singapore? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess well, I've been working on coral reefs for the past 20 years or so. Uh, I started really uh, you know, as a recreational diver. I learned diving uh, in this region. I learned it in Malaysia. Uh, and back then, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the reefs, you know, they look pretty healthy and uh, vibrant, vibrant colors, lots of species, amazing diversity, uh, almost anywhere you go in this region. Uh, and then when I started working on my first projects in Singapore, I realized uh, there are reefs in this region which have, uh, you know, undergone declines to, to different extents because of um, anthropogenic impacts uh, in in. In particular, for Singapore, it's caused mostly by coastal urbanization. Uh, we have had a, uh, several decades of um, these uh, development projects and also reclamation projects. So basically, uh, the sea is being reclaimed to be land. And so uh, that buried, uh, you know, about 60% of Singapore's reefs. Oh, wow. Yeah, over the last uh, five decades. And uh, through that, of course, uh, the, the reclamation also caused... Uh, an increase in sediment load. So there'll be a lot of more sediment that is floating on in the water as well as uh, settling onto the the environment, the, the coral reef environments and, and other habitats. So this sediment actually reduced the uh, light penetration uh, and that uh, caused all sorts of problems. So for, for instance, for corals, which rely on uh, sunlight to, to make food, um, to supply the energy for the entire ecosystem that reduced the um, amount of energy present and, and of course limited the uh, or has limited the the areas where reefs can grow. And so all these impacts uh, sort of show me that you know there's a lot uh, we need to do you know to try and understand uh, the biodiversity of reefs, their health before they you know they they, might even be lost uh, to us. And so I, I, I guess that was when I uh, started to work on projects in Singapore and then I did my PhD overseas. I came back about um, eight years ago to Singapore and I continued working on uh, trying to understand biodiversity on coral reefs in particular, but but also other marine ecosystems in, in Singapore and in the region. Yeah. And then when you came back and I like, saw the changes firsthand, was it bleaching? Was it just different species, just less overall habitat? Like, what were some of those changes that you saw? Yeah, I think there's this long-term impact from coastal urbanization and reclamation uh, that has always been there, you know, even before I started. Um, but I think, uh, you know, right when I, after I started, there were 
um, at least two major events of uh, coral bleaching. And coral bleaching is this phenomenon where uh, corals, because they are symbiotic with a, an algae that lives within them, that algae you know, makes food for the corals. And so when you have increased in sea surface temperatures, the corals and the algae are stressed and the balance between them are disrupted. So what happens is that the algae is expelled from the coral and when it happens the corals turn white right so that's why we call them call it that phenomenon coral bleaching uh, and there has been three major coral bleaching events globally there's there was one in 1998 which i didn't witness uh, there was one in 2010 which which i saw um, but you know i, I wasn't um, actively working on on um, coral bleaching topics at that point but when i came back in 2014 to singapore uh uh, witnessing the the bleaching in 2016 that was uh really quite eye-opening because that you saw how um widespread that that impact is right um you would think you know if, if it's is like a reclamation you're covering a reef mm -hmm. uh and of course you see that impact but coral bleaching is you know reef after reef you go regardless of the history of that reef um the the current impacts on the reef the health of the reef you know just all the corals just turn white ghostly white and that sort of um really gave me a perspective on how um you know how major this bleaching uh, phenomenon is in in that you know because of just you know climate change and this increase in sea surface temperatures you have uh, numerous reefs that are affected you know not just the localized impacts that that you know our coastal urbanization and reclamation can cause but really it's just very very widespread and so um, that really changed how i look at um you know i think we used to think that there's some resilience to the reefs um, i think there is still resilience to reefs and reefs can turn around and you know they they can recover from the bleaching if they manage to recover that symbiont, you know, the algae, within them, they can start uh, restart making food and 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 continue to be functional. But there will be reefs that will be, you know, uh, completely wiped out because of the death of the corals from yeah. starvation. Yeah, so that sort of uh, made me think that, you know, we, we have to do something about, about reefs um, and to learn more about reefs, but uh, through that learning, um, contribute to perhaps conservation and restoration. Yeah. With all three of these major bleachings, were they all caused by increases in sea surface temperature or were there other environmental factors? The um, increase in sea surface temperature is the major driver, um, but of course it is affected by other uh, effects as well. So what we know is that, um, in fact, Singapore, because the reefs here, because they are under this uh, sediment, right, which uh, which there is some protective function of these sediment. Uh, what I mean by that is that um, it is actually light that is um, the final, um, you know, nail in the coffin for corals. In 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 that you have uh, corals that can be stressed because of high temperatures, but it's actually high light that actually causes the symbionts to to leave mm. the coral, and so it's both temperature and light that drives bleaching, uh, and so in areas where Often in areas where it's quite pristine, you have no uh, anthropogenic impact. Because of the highlight, it can also cause bleaching. So both light and temperature. But in the case of Singapore, I, I think one of the reasons why it was also badly hit is because uh, of the, um, the, the history of urbanization and the, the local impact it, that it already has. So it reduces its resilience against um, bleaching. 
And so when you have high temperatures plus highlight plus local impacts, those act together to cause, you know, uh, bleaching and mortality eventually. Uh, and so there is there are two sides of it. So there's of course the bleaching, but there's also the recovery. Um, and I think what's what's corals here are, are pretty uh, good at. And uh, that's why they're resilient because they can recover from it. So from the 2016 bleaching, uh, we actually saw most of the re recovering to pre-bleaching levels uh, as of about two years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been monitoring the reefs over the last, you know, since 1980s. So we've sort of have a good idea of how reefs have uh, responded to impacts and how they have bounced back. And I think in this case, the 2016 bleaching was severe, but actually they have managed to recover, at least in Singapore. But we know in many parts of the world, uh, a lot of reefs elsewhere that they may have not have recovered fully uh, because it actually caused a change in the way reefs function. So if you remove the corals, if they die, uh, in some parts of the world, you have algae that takes over, you know, macroalgae, seaweed that takes over. And so corals can't get back into the system. But in Singapore, it's kind of unique because our light levels are quite low because of the sediment. So the, the seaweed are also not able to compete, out-compete the corals and the corals eventually come back. So I think there's, uh, there's this complexity that is quite interesting about reefs yeah. uh, and the reefs in the region. Because yeah. when we were doing some research for this, we heard that like about 30% of the Great Barrier Reef was destroyed in 2016. Yeah. Do you have like any idea if like that's recovering like similar to Singapore or is that struggling more because it is like clear waters? Um, I I would say clear waters is one of the um reasons why it has not all not all of it has bounced back. Um, I think that um there are also reefs that are quite similar. The inshore reefs or the Great Barrier Reef uh, are also quite similar in that it has high sediment okay. sedimentation, um and. In some reefs, they have a protective effect, so they they, they can recover from the bleaching. Um, but I, I wouldn't be able to say if most of that has the same effect. But in Singapore, it's it's quite clear that you know the communities have recovered generally to pre-bleaching levels uh, since you know twenty twenty one or so. So we are seeing relatively similar communities now on the reefs compared to pre-bleaching, and so that's a good thing. But with uh, climate projections. Uh, telling us that you know we might reach uh, annual bleaching. That means every year we are going to have bleaching. You know, in a in a in in half a that half a century or so, that that can that is rather worrying because you know from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty one, five years that was the amount of time it takes for reefs to recover, and so if reefs are going to be bleaching every year, then they are not going to have the opportunity to recover yeah. fully from the those events. Yeah. And when there are like large bleaching events, how quickly do those happen? So the bleaching events are caused um, by global and local um, sort of uh, increases in temperature. So uh, those three, 1998, 2010, and 2016, were caused by uh, a variety of um, sort of uh, oceanic or oceanographic events, but primarily El Nino, mm -hmm. uh, and that that um, cause, or extreme El Ninos cause these uh, really high, um, extreme increases in temperatures. Uh, and we actually, El Nino is returning, right, end mm -hmm. of the year to next year. So there, there are projections that coral reefs will bleach again in this region, uh, you know, in, in the you know, summer or just before summer of 2024. Um, so yeah, mainly is El Nino, uh, which drives increase in temperature in this part of the world. In other parts of the world, uh, Central Pacific, for instance, you might have a slightly different uh, trajectory 
of temperatures and thus coral um, conditions. Yeah, but in, in this part of the world, uh, El Nino is, is a big driver of increases in sea surface temperatures. Okay. Yeah. And then before we keep going, could you give a little bit of background on just the basic biology of corals? Yeah. So corals are the foundational species of coral reefs. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, on if you go diving in a coral reef, what is um, on the seafloor that is, you know, these colorful uh, sort of rock-like uh, organisms, uh, they, these are corals. And these corals are, are essentially animals. And, uh, you know, people used to ask, you know, are corals, you know, animal, are they rock or are they algae or animal, algae or rock. And in fact, they are, they are three, all three, because corals uh, are animals themselves, but they host uh, an algae within them, a microalgae, a single cell algae, which helps to make food and uh, to supply uh, energy for the corals to grow. And the corals, corals grow by producing calcium carbonate, which is a rock part of the coral. Uh, and this uh, grows to large structures, which becomes reefs. So multiple species that form these large structures of calcium carbonate or limestone, uh, these are called reefs. And the reefs, of course, because of the way corals grow, they are different um, life forms, they are different morphologies, they are branching, they are massive, they are uh, plating species. Different species coming together form these very complex structures. And these structures then host lots of other species. Right, You have fish, you have other invertebrates like crabs and, and snails and other mollusks. Uh, and, and this becomes an ecosystem because you have multiple species um, and they contribute to the functioning and they produce lots of biomass and that's that becomes essentially the coral reef ecosystem which is very complex because of that underlying coral animal which is uh, whose growth is driven by the algae mm -hmm. um, they, they are called zoocentelle um, or, or symbardinium uh, and that's that's essentially what corals are and, they, and how they drive reef growth and and reef persistence yeah. And then off the top of your head, do you know like generally like how much biodiversity coral reef supports like within the ocean or just like some general ways for people to think about like they're located all over the world. They kind of drive this much. Do you have like, any of those in your generally speaking? Yeah. In terms of biodiversity. So there have been many estimates of trying to understand how many species there are uh, in the marine environment, in the terrestrial environment, uh, and of course in coral reefs in specifically. Uh, the general, I mean, the, the more recent estimates place, there'll be, there are about 2 million species. Um, and we're talking about more of the eukaryotic species, so um, uh, multicellular eukaryotic species, about 2 million across all oceans. Uh, 1 million of them live on coral reefs. That, that's wow. the last estimate. So so about one third to half of all species in living in the oceans are in coral reefs. So that's sort of the estimates that we are looking at. So it's, it's a very large, um, very high proportion of all species that live in the oceans and also on Earth. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very rich environment. And that richness is, you know, you can witness it, right? You can you go in there and you can see different colors, different sizes, different structures. And then that's, that's the amazing thing about coral reefs. Yeah, we went diving in Tioman oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, it, was gr it was crazy to see like just how much was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just curious because we, we saw like sea turtles look to be like feeding on the corals. Are they eating corals or are they eating like something on, on them? It's likely to be 
and they, you know, it could be a combination of the seaweed that might be growing on the corals if they're dead. Um, or sometimes they, they just like to the scrape off small bits of tough algae and things like that. Okay. But primarily turtles feed on sea grasses. Okay. Um, but they they often just nibble on other things around. around yeah. the, if there are no seagrass growing on, on, yeah, around. Yeah, because did you say that the seagrass would only grow on the dead corals? Because a lot of the corals over there looked like kind of like covered in a little bit of moss mm. and they weren't overly vibrant. And maybe that's what you can touch on too, is just how vibrant are corals supposed to be? Because it seemed like relatively dull and like more of like the reds, browns, and less so like very vibrant like colors. Yeah, the, the coral, the colors of corals come from two things. So they has the host, that means the corals themselves, they have host pigments, but they are also, uh, they of course host the microalgae within them and that's usually green, greenish, brownish. Um, so for corals that, you know, and there's a range of uh, different pigments. So if, if the pigments of the corals themselves are more greenish and brownish, of course that will show up. Um, but if the algae themselves have, uh, you know, if the colors of the algae dominate, then it'll be greenish and brownish. Um, but it, it'll be important to distinguish between living corals and the dead corals. The living corals, uh, they can be green, but they can also be in different colors. But uh, corals, they are dead. They almost would be usually covered by algae. So these are macroalgae uh, or tough algae that can be greenish and or, or brownish if they are bigger. Uh, and those will cover the corals when they are dead. Um, because often when corals are alive, they actually would prevent the algae or the seaweed from settling on the corals or growing on the corals. So what you're seeing, if let's say the corals, are, is, if it's like a fuzzy kind of yeah. surface, uh, likely the corals have, those those corals that you're looking at have have died and are colonized by uh, tough algae. Yeah, because I would say like a lot of the corals out there that we saw were like that. Yeah, so it depends on the site. So Kioman, yeah, I've, I I I like Kioman a lot, and I I did some of my diving courses there. Um, but again, there's a diversity of health conditions on in Tioman. So if you go, if you are just on the house reef, for instance, or near to the resorts, nearer to the coast, the, the, the environment tends to be a bit more nutrient rich and so the favors algae growth, right? So then you have, um, the algae is competing with the live corals. And so maybe the, it's not as colorful, but if you go offshore a bit, you know, some of the other outer islands uh, nearer to Tioman, uh, they can be more colorful. Okay. Uh, and they have less sediment, they have less nutrients. So so different environmental conditions, you know, drive the how the how the reefs look, you know, as well generally. Because yeah. you know. for what I would estimate, like the ones closest to like the shore were probably a little bit more vibrant, more active. And then as you like got a little bit deeper like away from the island, like a little bit more offshore, it that's where you kind of started to see more of the moss and like the dead. Uh, okay. So so I think if if it's deeper, it's probably um just corals not being able to thrive in in that kind of depth with the perhaps there's a lot of sediment uh, and the sediment is occluding the light and so some algae would you know those micro uh, not micro but those tough algae that's growing uh they they can dominate the ecosystem um yeah so so it, it kind of depends on where you are and the local conditions yeah mm. and for the dead corals how does it work in terms of regrowth like if you have a live coral and a dead coral adjacent to each other, can the live coral spread on to the dead coral's host or is that area like not viable for growth after the fact? Yeah, so so let's say you have a living coral 
uh, and then around it, you basically have dead corals. Uh, the dead corals will remain dead. But what will ha- might happen is that you can have the living coral growing sideways and then colonizing or taking over that dead coral space, um, assuming it's able to um, grow faster than the seaweed that's coming in as well. Mm-hmm. Or you can have new recruitment. So you have actually larvae that's uh, coral larvae that's spawn in the waters or they reproduce uh, from adult colony somewhere else. They come to a certain spot, they, they uh, maybe it could be a dead coral area and then it uh, settles and then grows up to a new colony. So that space, uh, it, it just becomes space. So a dead coral will not just be revived, but you, you, it, if it, especially if the whole coral colony is dead. You may have a colony that is um, mostly dead. There's maybe a, a small uh, area of it that's still alive. There's still live animals in there. That live animal can spread mm-hmm. to cover the that space. But it, but if not, then it's new growth from uh, juvenile, from larvae that's settling onto the corals and then forming a new colony on its own. But bleached corals aren't dead corals. That's a good, yeah, that's a good, good comment. I think um, there, there is this time frame where corals bleach and then they are white and they are not dead yet. And so they just have their algae expelled. So they can, if they were to recover with that, uh, for that colony to recover, it has to recruit that algae back into their cells. Uh, and if they happen to do that, be able to do that, especially when the temperatures go down to, to normal, they can still continue to live. Uh, with uh, you know, so be the same colony, but maybe new new algae, sure. new um, new symbiodinium. Um, so so there's there are, uh, you know there's there's a time frame where actually corals can still recover, but if they don't uh, and they die because of starvation, because when they bleach, you don't have the algae with them. So they uh, you can still that space can still be colonized by corals, but it would be the next generation of corals in, yeah. in that sense. And then are corals. Are the male and female corals, are they the same? Is it all within one animal? Like how does that work? Mm. So there are different species have uh, different reproductive strategies. Um, so you've heard of coral spawning, I suppose. Mm. Uh, so coral spawning is this phenomena where once or twice a year, um, majority of coral species spawn uh, by releasing their eggs and their sperms, you know, a sperm into the water, and then external fertilization takes place. So the egg and sperm will meet uh, off from a different colony will meet. Um, that happens once or twice a year. So if uh, the uh, if a coral has produces both egg and sperm, they have both male and female, then they are hermaphrodites. They are both male and female. But there are some species uh, uh, where the males and the females are different colonies. So there are different strategies, right? So, um, so, so, uh, different species have take use different strategies to reproduce. Um, but I think majority of species are hermaphrodites, meaning that they are males and the females are together in one single colony, and they release both egg and sperm. Together. And the fertilization happens in the water, and then that larva will settle and recolonize if it meets like an area it can. Like that's right. Live? Yeah. Okay. That's right. So the reproduction for most species is external. So they release their eggs and sperm and, you know, in but millions of them, right? So in the hopes that they will meet another colony with their eggs and sperm and the eggs will meet the sperm of the, of the other one and then they become larvae and then they settle. Have you had or seen any data showing like how far some larva could travel? Um, I think, uh, 
there are so so there there's both the movement of the gametes, the eggs and the sperm, um, but there's also movement of larvae. And larvae can move uh, hundreds to thousands of kilometers before they settle. Because there's this uh period of time, we call it pelagic larval duration, where they are actually swimming. So you know corals adult corals just stay there, they don't move. But actually the for many marine invertebrates, including corals, their larvae swims around. All right, and they can swim to various degrees. So some swim a lot faster, some swim lo slower, um, but also they spend different amounts of time as larvae. So the longer they spend as larvae, the presumably the further they can travel. And so there are um, uh, coral larvae that can, can survive or be in larval stage for weeks. And because they are weeks in the swimming phase, they can reach, you know, hundreds to even thousands of kilometers away. But of course, the further away it is, the less likely you have surviving larvae. Yeah. Um, but um, all that is, 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 is you know, is, is a game of numbers in a sense. So the more larvae you produce, or more, the more gametes and uh, the more eggs and sperm you produce, the more larvae you produce. And, and so um, the reproductive output of corals is, uh, is also an active area of research, right? And we know for also that anthropogenic impacts, right? Climate change uh, and a lot of coastal impacts have reduced the reproductive output of corals. And so that has um, adverse effects also. You said a certain word a couple of times now, anthropogenic. Could you define that? So anthropogenic uh, means anthropo, which is the uh, 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 an impact that's caused by humans so entro will be humans uh, and so anthropogenic is uh, is impacts generated or caused by humans so that's so why we use the term anthropogenic impacts sure. uh, which includes climate change obviously mm -hmm. and then with the reproductive event that happens only once or twice a year i guess two questions of that is like one do you or do researchers know when those events are and then with that how do they study fertilization rate if it's such a broad scale mm. um so Locally, at every reef, there will be um, uh, localized timings of reproduction. Uh, we know that the majority of species spawn eggs and sperm at generally in April, uh, and sometimes there's a second time in the second half of the year. Um, but that's for uh, certain certain reefs. There are other reefs uh, where they spawn in different months, but generally it's once or twice a year. Uh, and that really was you know the discovery was actually quite recent the discovery was was known only since the 1980s when some australian um you know scientists they they witnessed this corresponding and and usually it's after uh, after dusk so when it's starting to get dark so not many people in the water witnessing this thing so they when they made this discovery was like oh okay we've been missing this phenomenon for for decades right uh and so since then people have started to go out there to to um you know to record when corals you know Re uh, spawn and reproduce uh, and so now we have a pretty good map and um, like a calendar of when different species spawn and at, at different localities when they spawn right so it can be the same species but you know in different reefs they spawn at different times mm -hmm. and that's something you can see right yeah yeah. Okay. So you can see in two ways. One is uh, you can see going off when right when they spawn and that happens over an hour or two so it's like you, on a reef, you can have several species going off at, at the same time uh, over one or two hours and tr or sometimes throughout the night. Or you can, if you don't witness it during that night or that evening, 
uh, uh, a few days before or up to even a few weeks before you if you actually for 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 researchers what they do is they will uh extract a bit of the the skeleton of the coral and then they will see eggs inside the coral so okay. when you see the pink eggs that are re- developing uh ready to go that's when you know it's going to spawn soon so you can so, so when the spawning occurs it's like pink plumes of smoke yeah. that's eggs yeah exactly so so the eggs uh often for for species that are hermaphroditic they that, that means they have both male and female they uh, reproduce with uh, a big egg and then the sperm is around it so it's like an egg bundle then when it reaches either before it reaches the surface or reaches the surface you'll break apart because the sperm will actually have to fertilize another egg somewhere right Mm -hmm. and so they'll break apart and so now I have eggs and sperms floating around looking for what kind of looking for you know another egg and another sperm so it's quite quite an interesting phenomenon in itself yeah, and and a beautiful phenomenon as well for is for a lot of photographers. They like to go up, you know, to the reefs during the spawning time because it's like this massive rain that's upside down, you know, going going up. All the eggs yeah. floating up. It's quite cool. Definitely sounds like it. And what does that like coordinated spawning tell us about the communication between coral reefs? Yeah, it's it's a, again also an active area of research. So it's how what what are the cues that they use? And I think um, th- there have been a lot of. Um, uh, tests or some studies to show, you know, there's a combination of moon phases, you know, uh, the which cause the waters to be in a certain condition, right? So, um, when the water is pretty still, that's when it's good time to spawn because then you, the eggs and sperm are not swept away immediately, whereas they are in this contained environment. Uh, so I think moon, the moon phases, the lunar phases is is one big um uh, driver. So so. Uh, Corals have adapted over, over I know a long time to be able to you know perceive either through the light of the moon, or somehow um, wind speeds or even the the tide levels. You know all these contribute. Uh, all these are driven by the the moons, right? The moon phases. So um, all these might contribute, but I think uh, we don't actually have a full picture of, of what's going on. What are the main drivers of what, you know, what, what are they perceiving that they need to spawn? Right. So yeah. I think that's, that's a really interesting question that a lot of scientists are, are working on. Mm. And then based on the conversation so far, do you think there's anything that we're missing to understand about coral reefs or that you want the listener to know, like just to get a good holistic understanding of what they are? Yeah, I, I think generally, um, you know, we, we going back to the question you asked about how many species there are on coral reefs, uh, it, it is still an open question. So I think we 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 only know going by what we have uh, recorded. But actually, if you uh, look at what's hidden on the reef uh, structure is you know there are lots of species that we are we are not we have not actually seen uh, and uh, and the reason is because you have corals that are of different life forms they they grow to different shapes and hidden within those uh, lots of species which um, are rarely collected like rarely seen um, so more recent work have you know tried to um, use um, genetic information so using dna technologies uh, to sequence what's in the water in the hopes of understanding what other species there are there so we know that all um, organisms shed dna into the water so like us we shed dna into the air right so if you two leave the room now 
I can I can filter the air out and then I can actually sequence your DNA. Mm-hmm. And your genome can be sequenced just from the DNA. So it's pretty amazing the the amount of uh information that that DNA can provide us with. And the same goes for uh, the marine environment. So the organism shared DNA. So um what scientists have been doing is to, you know, collect that water, filter it, and that DNA can be sequenced. And then what they have found is the large majority of that DNA that is in the environment uh, come from organisms that we have totally no idea about. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they have been never been described, never been discovered, but the DNA signature is there, yeah. right? So, so it's uh, new lineages and so on. Um, and of course, there's one way to do it. We call that environmental DNA. So um, sort of uh, concentrating that DNA that's from the environment. But you could also you know, use some standardized sampling devices where you put put out some kind of a trap, right? So organisms go in. So it could be fish traps, but um, for for the large proportion of species, they tend to be small. What we have done is we have deployed these uh, reef monitoring structures, autonomous reef monitoring structures or arms. Um, they are made out of plates, several plates, because uh, those plates are stacked uh, uh, on each other and you have a tiny space in between those plates. And that what happens then is you have all these tiny organisms that are used to being, uh, you know, um, embedded in the matrices of the reef uh, on the structure, a structurally complex environment of the reef. They go hide in these plates, and then what we do is after one or two years, we go extract that th- those structures, and then we sequence or we just recover what's on uh, on the plates and we sequence everything that's on, that's on the on the structure, and we again we found uh, we have found found that you know about fifty to seventy five percent of to, of organisms that are recruited all the way from uh, macrofauna to bacteria, um, those have not been. You know, there's no. You know, there's no uh, previous understanding of what they were. Right? These are new sequences, uh, new records of organisms that that um, have never been seen. Right? Uh, living on the. You know, if we just went out there collecting. Uh, these are just, you know, um, probably a lot of them are new species. And, yeah. yeah. And this is describing your work with the cryptobiome? Yeah. So essentially, cryptobiome is are the species that are living on any um, environment, but they are generally hidden from from observation. Uh, and uh, on the reef, of course, they hide in the crevices and in within the matrices of the of the corals and of the reef and, and so the only way to get them out is to remove the reef um, but of course that will destroy the reef so what we do is we deploy those the autonomous yeah. reef monitoring structures the arms to characterize them much better and then are you storing all this data like are you like open sourcing it so other people can look at it or are you like partnering with other institutions because is there an ultimate goal here of saying like we are discovering like half of these new things we're discovering or like could they unlock potential answers for like helping save the corals? Yeah, certainly. So I think uh, all the data that that we get from these arms, so we have deployed uh, a dozen of these over the last um, last three or four years. Uh, the data is all put in um, an open source uh, database. So we call this the GenBank. Right, and that's hosted in, in the United States, uh, and uh, basically these are sequences that uh, anyone can download and to figure out. You know, maybe some a- another researcher from elsewhere have uh, would like to compare 
you know, what other species they have there versus what they have in Singapore, then they can match, you know, what's the degree of overlap between the fauna here and there. Um, so all the data is open source, open access, um, uh, and you just have to download them and, and, and do some analysis to understand uh, how widespread these species are. Um, do you get the same species here versus somewhere else? Yeah, so that's that's sort of the goal of this, uh, and and what one good thing about this program, uh, this is the Global Arms program, and um, so when we deploy them, they are standardized across all of the you know you you basically purchase them for a small price, and and they are standardized in terms of size, in terms of how you um, how they look like, um, and and so everyone every group that does this will have uh you know the, the data that comes out will be in a way um, quite comparable across different areas and also across different time points. So apart from just understanding what's there uh, in different parts of the world, this program has also allowed us to set up a monitoring program. So, um, you know, rather than having to uh, go into the water and survey small little things, you know, visually inspect or visually examine small organisms, what we do is you deploy this um, over time and then we extract them at different times. So then we had we actually have a time series of of these diversity that is you know uh, that they can be changed over time because of of you know hum, uh, human impacts, anthropogenic impacts, uh, and so we can track you know what's the diversity change over time with these structures. So that's sort of the uh, the beauty of this program is is that it allows us to compare over space and over time. Uh, in the same time, yeah, at the same place. Yeah, that's so right. You guys put in twelve. How many? Do you know how many have been put in like, globally? Oh, I think um, definitely hundreds, if not thousands. Um, I I don't have the numbers, but they have been deployed in many parts of the world: mm -hmm. Hawaii, Indonesia, um, many parts of Southeast Asia, um, and uh, there has been many groups working on it. I think there's now uh, you know a, a global collaboration is ongoing to try to put all that data together to do a global analysis, um, and so that's that's sort of the benefit of this kind of projects where you're using the same device by doing it in different places uh, different lengths of time of deployment and that gives us a good uh, understanding of both diversity but also you know how that diversity change or changes over time yeah. yeah so so that's that's one of the exciting things about about this project have you guys been able to draw any conclusive insights from the data yet um so at least locally we know actually that um what's clear is that the the biodiversity of a site so if it's generally healthy and and uh has good coral diversity it will also increase the amount of diversity of these small little um critters fauna that's growing on on the on those arms um so there is a general positive correlation between local biodiversity and the the diversity of these fauna that's growing in these these um so so it's a actually a good um monitoring tool because it gives us a uh, a good sense of you know whether the waters are um you know clean enough whether they are healthy enough to support you know that uh those species that are growing in 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 corals and so on um but at the global level i think it's not as clear it seems to suggest that there are there are so we know that this Southeast Asia is a biodiversity hotspot, but there are actually other, there are actually 
arms that have been deployed elsewhere that shows that they equally have quite high diversity. Um, so you, I think the the interesting questions about where do we have highest biodiversity is, is you know, we we are getting some interesting um, interesting findings from this that suggest maybe it's not just Southeast Asia or the Coral Triangle, but you know other areas which can be rich in different groups of organisms. Uh, where's the Coral Triangle? The Coral Triangle is this um, area of maximum diversity. We're usually referring to marine uh, species and that uh, goes from Philippines uh, to southwest to Indonesia and then all the way to Solomon, Solomon Islands on the east. So that triangle, physically okay. a triangle, uh, denotes this area of maximum diversity. And that doesn't include the Great Barrier Reef. That's too far south, right? Yeah, that's that, that's generally quite south. But um, that this is the area where we we start off to be the where you have highest diversity of uh, corals, fish, and other invertebrates. Yeah. But this triangle have shifted in its configuration. You know, it's it used to be more of a, you know. It's not a literal triangle, yeah. right? It's more of, you know, this area resembles a triangle and uh, areas around it. Even Singapore is is not really inside the coral triangle. Um, West Malaysia is also not really part of the triangle, but it has a lot of diversity. Um, so a lot of peripheral areas are also considered to be in this part of coral triangle. And it's more of a management tool and um, policy tool in a, that it allows countries that are within this uh, area to use it as a way to generate more resources or you know for conservation so it's, it is a um, a good way to you know tell people you know we have we are part of the coral triangle we have a lot of biodiversity and we need resources to conserve that yeah. biodiversity yeah. Yeah. another part of your research that we saw was your work on temperature tolerance yeah. could you explain a little bit about that and kind of tying back to what we started off with about global temperature rises being one of the leading causes for bleaching events yeah i, I again we i know our, our our lab's work is focused on the diversity of of organisms and when we are looking at the impacts of heat and uh, our thermal stress uh, on reefs we are actually looking at how that impact um, or how that thermal stress impacts diversity and so we have been looking at so the symbionts that live in corals right that make food for the corals is not just one species there are actually hundreds or even thousands of species that that are you know uh, at one time each colony of cor uh, corals can can host hundreds of them in a single colony and so what we are trying to understand is what happens um we know that during bleaching those algae are expelled so what is being recruited back you know what what is the dynamics what are the dynamics of what is uh, leaving the coral and what's coming back to the corals um, so generally what we found we have found is that um, during a bleaching event uh, it reduces the um, uh, the diversity of the symbionts that are present inside so we think that certain more tolerant species of that of the algae are able to stay inside the coral. Even though most of it's gone, most of the algae is gone, some of that is retained. Uh, and when it's recovered, it recovers the lower diversity of the, those symbionts. Right, so the diversity of symbionts are actually affected from the bleaching. Uh, and we also look at uh, microbial uh, communities, so looking at the bacteria that is residing in and around the coral. And we've, we have been, been able to find some 
um, disease factors, so some pathogen pathogen like um, sequences that are uh, that are showing up in our data. Um, you know, showing that during bleaching you can have some potential diseases that can come in because either uh, they are thrive in higher temperatures or that the corals have uh, lower you know resilience against diseases and that that changes the communities of bacteria that are around the coral yeah so those are the uh, you know the the findings that we've been you know getting from from the work that we're doing in terms of bleaching uh, and overall what we you know I, I think the the general finding that um, bleaching reduces diversity, uh, not just in corals, but also in the symbionts, in the microbial, microbial communities is probably quite a general one that you, can, that you can take away from some of these studies. So when we're looking at solutions to these problems, would it, for, two parts. First, like how exactly does the coral kick out the algae? And I asked that because when we look for solutions, are we looking at trying to create more resilient coral or more resilient algae? Yeah, um, I think that the I would say the short answer is both um, because there's host factors that will increase resilience, meaning the host is adapted over generations to be able to tolerate thermal stress, but there are algae that are also adapted over generations to be um, tolerant against thermal stress. So what at the community level, what we have seen is that um, in, in certain reefs where they have bleached previously, they tend to be a bit more resilient in future bleaching uh, events. Not all, but at least some of those that have been studied. So we think that it's, it's both the host and the algae that actually confers that resilience. Um, so there are groups out there, a lot of uh, researchers that work on symbionts that are actually trying to select for symbionts that are more tolerant uh, and then to put them in, you know, in the tanks in a, with the corals so that the corals will take them out. Uh, but there are also uh, groups where uh, they have done some experiments showing that if you uh, thermally stress the coral, but you don't kill them, so you, you sort of give them small stresses, you increase the temperature by a bit over time. Um, that actually increases the, the tolerance of the coral just within a single generation. Mm -hmm. But of course, you can also select over generations, select for, um, for larvae that comes from more tolerant hosts. And then that over generations will increase the tolerance of the entire population. Um, so a lot of those uh, studies are being done right now across by different groups. So um, I think what is nice is that, you know, you have not just one solution that we're targeting, but we are, um, you know, the entire coral reef community is actually looking at different solutions, right? Um, and we are targeting different parts of that coral holobion. That's called a coral biome because it's the entire um, you know, coral as an ecosystem, you have the host, you also have the symbionts, and also some groups are look, working on the microbial communities because the microbes also confer some resilience or tolerance against uh, heat stress. So there are also microbiologists that are involved and they are, they are also looking at what are the kinds of bacterial communities that will increase the host tolerance to bleaching. Mm -hmm. So you might take those communities and then you put them together with the corals in the hopes that they will take up those um, those microbes and then they become more tolerant 
against heat heat stress. So yeah, lots of different interesting potential solutions. Um, I think preliminarily there are some quite positive results coming from that. I think one of the biggest questions everyone have been asking is how do we scale this up? Because you can do this in the lab, you can do this in your tanks, um, but being, being able to do this at the reef level, that is, um, again, an open question, uh, also uh, active area research. So ultimately, before we can get there, I think we still need to figure out how to you know, reduce emissions and reduce you know, the impacts of, of you know, climate change at a global level. We can we cannot just rely on these solutions that are you know just really just currently very expensive and also just emerging. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we have to attack this problem from many different scales, many different um, ways, and and um, through collaboration across the globe. Certainly, it sounds like th so the lab grown corals or the lab altered corals are they generally accepted back into the reef environment? Um, yeah. So when we when we test those corals, we tend to take from the local local populations, uh, and then we put them back where we find them, mm. or we put them in in the same, more or less the same environment, but maybe in areas where maybe it's more, more degraded. So we need more of those corals there. Um, but we typically haven't discussed or thought about perhaps transplanting corals across national boundaries mm -hmm. because that would be a it will require more and a broader discussion about what should we what what can we do there has been you know 10 years ago um people were discussing you know assisted migration of cor of of organisms right and corals were this one of these possibilities where you can transplant corals from maybe um more heat stress environments to areas where it's you know less warm and mm. so they get my thrive. So so that that conversation is again restarting because now that we have these technologies to boost resilience in corals, the question is can we put those corals back or put those corals in other areas where they might they might actually help to restore local populations. Um so that again is is still a conversation that people are having. It's it's just a lot of ethical questions as well as, you know, the 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 question of whether you have uh you have to conserve genetic diversity if you only have a certain types of corals that you're putting out in the environment are you reducing the diversity in terms of the the genetic makeup of those um of those species that might cause problems down the line so if if you have another type of stress maybe not thermal stress but perhaps ocean acidification would they you know cause more problems because now you only have a limited set of uh, genetic diversity on in those restored corals mm -hmm. so those are questions that you know scientists are still asking and still trying to grapple with but for the most part when you place a coral in a certain area it'll tend to grow from that spot because i, I know earlier we talked about the way the sexual reproduction occurs it, it gets released it grows it can float wherever yeah. but for the most part it will still like pick up in that one location um if, if it's suited for the environment so typically um if you if they are locally adapted to the environment uh, and you have no other stresses, um, it will it will thrive. So you you know you grow out some you you pick up a coral fragment, you grow it up in a tank, you put it back in the same place. It typically would, as long as it's um, attached properly to the substrate to the reef, it will typically grow um, grow fine. Um, so the question is, could, will you be able to transplant that coral to elsewhere? 
And I think there's some experience that we have in Singapore where we have done a lot of restoration projects, transplanting corals from one place to another. Um, the success rate is pretty high, um, but again, Singapore is very small. So you think about um, the environmental conditions are not very different between between sites. So I think we we have that benefit, and and so we can potentially take one coral from one area, we grow it up in the tanks where they have, once they are healthy and they are in a better shape, we can put them back in another reef, and they they will they should survive quite well. That's great. Yeah. And earlier you were talking about you know we need to reduce our emissions and that all help corals. Are there other threats that we know the weight to in the sense of like we know that sea temperature rises are a big problem do we know that pollution causes like a certain amount or do we know that acidification know, like, yeah acidification like, do we have an idea do we have any mapping with that yeah we know a, a lot less about ocean acidification in terms of the the responses of species right and while for corals we know quite uh, quickly, quite we we knew quite quickly that you know if you increase in temperature, it drives the symbionts out of the coral. Um, for acidification, there seem to be differences in tolerances of different species um, within uh, between coral species, but also with other um, shell uh, calcium carbonate making organisms. Right, so you have mollusks, you have shells that can dissolve. Uh, you have um, you know organisms that uh, rely on having. Uh, generally a non-acidic environment. Um, but overall, the the change in the, or the decrease in pH that we're seeing, um, actually, some of those, some of those values have already been, um, you know, you, you have recorded those values in some areas. So, uh, in naturally quite acidic waters, there still are corals growing. And so there's a bit of, you know, difference areas or localities having different uh, tolerances plus different species also have different tolerances and so the uh, I think the the effects are, are a lot less clear for ocean acidification um, but also uh, as you know I was mentioning that in Singapore we have had decades of coastal urbanization and that's not seen in many other pristine reefs or more pristine reefs so that in itself is already you know one threat that that has been ongoing and he has not declined that threat has not declined now we have ocean acidification uh thermal stress or bleaching all coming together right and so i think the worry the worry is more of the interactive impact between them rather than individual impacts because now we know quite clearly that you know that, that there are some tolerances against um, thermal stress. There are some tolerances against um, ocean acidification, and also corals have survived the increase in sediment in our waters for a long time. But what happens if all three or all these multiple impacts come together in the next century or so? And that's that's what we don't really know. Like yeah. what are the impacts, uh, combined or integrative impacts of of all these happening together? Um, so we have done some work to look at uh, uh, you know what is the impact of sediment plus heat what is the impact of sediment plus uh, acidification but if you, you know designing experiments that try to put all these together and you know they have to be controlled in, in, in certain ways is a scientific is a scientific challenge right um, you have you need to have multiple 
different treatments, you know, to try and mimic that that multiple stress. And so what we have found at least for temperature and heat stress, oh sorry, heat stress and sediment stress is that um, heat stress actually drives a lot of the physiological changes. Um, whereas sediment, they they have already sort of um, adapted to that that sedimentary environment. Um, so I think overall it's still the 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 heat stress that is that's actually stressing the you know is causing a lot of the mortality and and bleaching or bleaching and mortality of corals. Um, so yeah, thermal stress appears to be the most uh, the biggest threat so far. I think compared even to the local stresses that we are seeing. Yeah, and then. How would you say, like, do you think that, like, the global community, like, researchers are doing a good job collaborating and, like, talking amongst each other to kind of compare all these different threats and come up with some solutions? And then are there any solutions that you're aware of that are succeeding right now? Yeah, it's, uh, I think the coral reef research community is generally quite, you know, collaborative. Um, I, I, you know, you go to conferences and everyone is really happy to work with one another, provide data provide corals even, provide material. I I, I don't see a, a problem with, with that. I think generally we all want to work together. I think the challenge is in the complexity of the coral reef system, all right, in, in that uh, we have reefs that are of different histories and they are spread over, you know, different areas. And they all, not all, but many of them respond very differently. And so a solution that's, well tailored for Singapore waters, it may not work for, you know, somewhere in Hawaii, right? Because you know we have a lot of sediment. Um, we, you know, Singapore waters have a lot of sediment. There are very specific um, ways in which we help corals. So, for instance, in Singapore, we know that if we get, if we are able to increase the the thermal tolerance of the corals, I think the corals will do quite well. Um, but in other areas, you have to deal with light, increase in light, you have to deal with um, changes in the local um, oceanographic conditions, um, and of course, increase in the the, the the urbanization impacts in some some areas. So we we are all at different stages of of uh, impact and and different the nature of the impacts are different and so I think that's one of the challenges. So e even though we work together, that the the solutions um that we can come up with, even though they are general, they may not apply to every single reef. And so, um, it is a continuing discussion. We have to tailor you know the solutions to to different areas. So in Singapore, for instance, I think, um, we are we are working with increasing the host tolerance so we, we are sort of doing sub lethal stress on the corals so that we build their resistance up and then we are also looking at microbial um microbial communities that are better at surviving or, or conferring some uh, resistance to bleaching to the corals and we are using that as well um so that's for us but then for other places they might be doing different things and but we of course we share notes and um some of the processes that we do but the experiments that we do will be very similar maybe the conditions that we are subject corals to will be slightly different sure yeah but yeah we of course we we have to work together yeah and then as we start to wrap up here why should people care about coral reefs especially like people that live inland that are never going to go see them what impact do they have on humanity and then along with that if we were to stop intervention now and continue to degrade our reefs at the rate we're going what would that look like in the next 10 years, 20 years? Yeah, I, it's, 
you know, I uh, I think it's it's clear. Hundreds of millions of people rely on reefs, not necessarily directly. So not every one of these millions of people harvests from reefs, um, but ultimately they may be either living close to the coast coastline or they may be uh, even in a city relying on you know food fish right from reefs and so on um, I think we just I mean most of us just don't have that um, uh, sort of that the link back to the oceans anymore and I, I and and that's unfortunate but I think ultimately we need to still um, you know tell people that you know a lot of people are reliant uh, and it's sizable enough that if these people are deprived of their protein, of their livelihood, because the reefs are gone, um, that can cause a lot of, you know, could be geopolitical, could be economical uh, problems. Um, and and that ultimately can, will affect us, right? So, so even though we are not directly reliant, I mean, I don't eat a lot of reef fish or, or, or anything. We, we, we are ultimately affected by the the um you know the the societal changes that can happen if reefs are gone you know tomorrow um i think what we as a scientist we we you know we have seen reefs change right i've seen reef change for 20 years over 20 years um but we have seen them recover as well if you look at the geological record reefs have survived for thousands of years our modern reefs were built over the last seven eight thousand years um, corals have been around for millions of years, right? Up to 400 million years. So uh, I don't think we need to worry that species will go extinct. There'll be some species that go extinct. And so I think the the, the narrative that we should be uh, thinking about is that actually we are more reliant on reefs than reefs need us for us to conserve them. Ultimately, um, you know, we are not going to be producing enough food, even if you are good at growing lab-grown meat and so on. We, we still will have to rely on part of our protein source on reefs and other marine environments. So I think it's really important to, to have that perspective that perhaps also it's not just us, but also communities that living closer to the coast, they are directly um, relying on the reefs. And if they don't get their protein, they don't get their livelihood, you know, we need to, you know, think about what are the impacts that will be for us down the line, you know. So, yeah, I, I think I think we all need to, it's our responsibility to sort of understand it well because um, the impacts can be upon us very quickly and impacts may not be direct, not, be, not that we'll be starving, but actually might be other issues that, that can cause us to, to lower our be to, to have a lower standard of living and things like that, even if you're living on the city in the city. Certainly. And then do you have any final words of advice for students or people listening, whether how to get involved, easy actions you can take, where you can learn more, anything like that? Yeah, they, they have plenty of resources online. Um, I think, you know, just to learn about what reefs uh, are and you know what you can do locally. Obviously, at the global level, we all um, it's really, in a way, it's simple, but in a way, it's, it's a mammoth task that, you know, we need to reduce emissions. That is really the number one um, solution, right? And because that will reduce the the impacts of bleaching and or, or, or thermal stress on corals. Um, but locally, uh, again, our research has shown that, you know, local impacts can magnify these global impacts. So if we um, can... 
minimize pollution that's going into the waters, in a, into our waterways, which eventually lead to the reefs. I think that would be important um, to uh, be, um, you know, to uh, educate ourselves on on all these different impacts and the, the fact that local actions can 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 have positive benefits for for reefs i think that's that's really important to to have uh, to, to have in mind yeah perfect well thank you professor wong it's been wonderful thank you Thanks so much. to continue your learning go to our website discoveringacademia.com there you will find the show notes resources mentioned ways to get involved and much more pertaining to each professor if you enjoyed today's episode please subscribe leave a review and join our newsletter to stay up to date Until next time.